You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is an Australian freelance writer, blogger, and author with more than 20 years professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. And this is episode 17 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm here with the fantastic Alison Tate. How are you this week, Alison? Well, I'm fantastic, obviously. Um, Well, I am fantastic, but I'm also a little bit bothered and bewildered because I'm sitting here at the moment and on my left-hand side, I have the typeset pages for book one of the Mapmaker Chronicles. So we're almost at the end of that particular journey with book one. Wow. on the right-hand side, I have the structural edit for book two, so I'm just oh. starting it all again. So it's a little bit, um, you know, half of me is like, yippee, and the other half is, oh, no, um, <laughs> which could be a very unusual place to be. But what about you? Are you in an unusual place, Val? Um, I'm at home at this exact point in time. My little dog, Rambo, is on my lap, and he's there because he's a bit shaken because Rocky the cat just tried to kill him. Oh. So I'm just looking after him for a little bit. So I'm neither bothered or bewildered. I'm trying to be loving and nurturing. And does this happen often at your house? Um, yes, <laughs> with increasing frequency. Oh. The cat, Rocky, he doesn't, he's not like, you know, a serial killer or anything. But he, <laughs> not yet. <laughs> no. But he I, does. He's escalating, Val, he's escalating. <laughs> I know. He does have stalking tendencies and unfortunately he likes to stalk the little dog who's smaller than him and freak him out. And um, I do get concerned that Rambo will die of fright one day. Goodness. But anyway, apart from that, but apart from being bothered and bewildered, I would like to know if you are also excited. Oh, I am. Well, yes, I am. I mean, it's a very strange kind of feeling to be holding pages that you know are going to be a book, you know, in a couple of months. And so I, I am, you know, really very excited, but I'm also just, you know, I'm a kind of pragmatic girl, so <laughs> I just... I temper that excitement with the knowledge that there's more to do. There's more to do. There's always more to do. What there's, can I say? There's always more to do. So <clears throat> this week, in uh, apart from protecting my little dog, Rambo, uh, one of the things that I did last night, now at the time of recording, it was actually Global Inbound Marketing Week. <laughs> oh. Now, I know that uh, sounds doesn't sound that exciting, but no. I went to an event last night as part of Global Inbound Marketing Week, which is which does incorporate content marketing and we've been talking a lot about that because it's a really huge growth industry in terms of um, writing. Yes. Uh, And it was fascinating because I reckon, oh, at least 10 people like inbound marketing specialists who have clients who, you know, and and consulted them on their blogs and their websites and um, eBooks and articles and that sort of thing would have talked to me about the shortage of writers that in in their world you know oh. that they are really looking for good writers and um who can basically fulfill this ever uh increasing volume of um demand for in for, for content um <clears throat> they're really looking for content creators and um one of the things that i you know had an interesting conversation with them and one of the things was that the <clears throat> pay rate for content is typically not always but 80 percent of the time lower than what freelance writers and journalists are used to. And um, it was interesting to just get their thoughts on how they reconcile that. They have, most of them have already concluded that their fantasy of um, outsourcing to a third world country (laughs) is, um, uh, was very delusional. And because the kind of copy that they got back just wasn't, um, yeah, it just didn't work. So they've given up on the idea that they can get content 
next to nothing. Uh, they know that they have to pay a decent rate. But at this stage for, you know, 80%, it seems, of them, um, that decent rate is still probably half the rate of what, uh, con- you know, journalists and freelance writers are used to. So I think that um, we're probably going to see a rationalisation of the industry in that that may well continue because there's still the 80% who are paying, sorry, the 20% that are still paying full rate. But I think that while the 80% will continue, I think the rationalisation will not be an increase necessarily in the rate because, but it will be in the expectation from the right. writer or journalist so, you know, usually when you create an article, you put immense number of hours, multiple interviews, do a lot of research. But I think what may happen is that in that middle tier, the 80% tier, um, journalists and freelance writers may actually find some of those viable jobs if they're presented with the interview, presented with the information, presented with the research and just need to turn it into <clears throat> good words. <clears throat> right, well, so, which makes sense. Like I, I think from, a, from my perspective, and this is, I mean, obviously I've been working as a freelance writer for a long time mm-hmm. and I've also been, you know, you, you, be, you know, I'm not silly and I've been online for a long time and I've also noticed that the, you know, the, the jobs, the print jobs that do pay really well are becoming fewer. There are a lot more online opportunities and yeah. you do have to find a way to, rationalize that to yourself as a writer Mm. the only way that I can do that to be honest is I have to look at the job that I'm presented with I have to work out in my head how many hours it will take me to do it yeah and I now look at those jobs as an hourly rate job rather than a per word job which is what you do with print publication so if I can can produce the article in an hour or two and it works out at a you know what I consider to be a reasonable hourly rate and that's different for everyone as well then I'm happy to do the job, but mm. I will I will put in the minimum number of hours possible to get that work done in a reasonable way. And I think that that's perhaps possibly how, you know, it needs to be looked at. I cannot look at those jobs on a word rate because they no. make me cry. Yep. Um, I have to look at them as to how many hours did I put into this and is that a decent hourly rate? I'm and really I think that's glad. the only way forward. Yeah, I'm really glad you've identified that and articulated that because I feel that many of the old school journalists and many freelance writers kind of just stick to that, um, that stick to the idea of a word rate without taking into account that, well, this job is a thousand words, but it'll take you 50 hours. And this job is a thousand words, but it'll take you five hours. Yeah, that's right. um, So just the pure economics of it makes so much sense for you to be taking, if you're doing it for financial reasons, that is. Yeah, that's right. To take the five-hour job. So I'm, yeah, I'm glad you've identified that and said that out loud because it's a a a hard realisation to come to. I have to, it, it took me a while. Because when I first started doing these kind of work, I was offered, you know, I was getting a lot of offers to do these jobs and I was just like, I, I just can't, that that just makes no sense to me. Why would I write you that many number of words when I could get three times as much for the same number of words from a, from a print publication? But then yeah. you have to look at it from the perspective of how much effort is involved in some of this stuff. And um, often with content for the internet, it's, it's a one interview maybe. Yeah. you know, or it's, it's, there's a lot less, um, I'm not having to find 28 case studies, you know, I'm yeah. not having to do any of those kinds of things, which can add up and up and up and up in hours when you're doing a feature story. So yeah, it's, it's all in every, like, as with so many things in life, it's all in the perspective. Yep, definitely. Okay. So in terms of the world of writing and publishing and blogging this week, I came across an interesting link and we'll put it in the show notes called book towns where reading is the reason to live. Oh. Yeah, it's kind of cute. I need to move there. Yeah. Well, you that you'll have several choices because oh. Basically, it says some small towns in the rural reaches that lost their former industries have reimagined them themselves as book towns by filing, filling sorry, empty storefronts with used and antiquarian bookshops and hosting literary festivals. The goal is to attract new visitors in the form of bibliophiles. And so they're um, all documented in the International Organization of Book Towns. Yes, wow. there is such a thing. <laughs> 
I'm so excited. Yes, yes. And it's a movement that started in 1961, but it's gained traction more recently. And, you know, there's there's some towns that are, um, uh, you know, 400 people, and yet they are tourist destinations because of the number of bookshops. There's one that has um, 20 bookshops, and even though there's only a population of 400 people. And um, in the town of Hay on Wye in Wales, there are about two dozen bookshops uh, and it has um, an honesty bookshop where you just, you know, pick your books and <laughs> put your money in. And I think that's interesting because in Victoria, the town of Clunes, so for those who don't know, it's C-L-U-N-E-S, yeah. uh, is a bookshop town. And wow. it's not a very, uh, uh, you know, populated town, but on the weekends anyway, it's full of uh, tourists because they're going to all of the bookshops and there's, you know, there are literary festivals there. And interestingly, a couple of, or a few months ago, they, um, you know, in an effort to really promote this, there was one bookshop that was for sale for, I think it was like $1.00. Oh. Or or the rent was $1 a week or something, but the condition was that it had to remain a bookshop and it had to be open from, you know, Wednesday to Sunday or whatever it is. Right. Yeah, so it, it, pretty cute, you know, bookshop town. So have a look at the link because there's some, some great photos of these towns as well. Have you ever been to a bookshop town? I've never been to a bookshop town. I would like to go to a bookshop town and my children would love to go to a bookshop town. They absolutely adore bookshops. So I'd be there. I'm, I'm going to put them on my list of places to go when I travel next. Do you, do you buy old books? Yes. What kind? All sorts of different ones. Uh, the kids, we, we go op shopping and the kids will often pick up, you know, old, you know, they, uh, Enid Blyton. You're always going to find a good Enid Blyton yeah. somewhere. We just look for anything that looks interesting. I picked up a fantastic um like 1960s edition of Sherlock Holmes um, stories abridged for children um, for for my 10-year-old last time I was poking around in a bookshop because um, he loves Sherlock Holmes and started reading them quite young and, of course, they're quite complicated. Mm. Um, So these – and he loved it. It's, you know, it's got pride of place on the bookshelf and, yeah, no, we love books as things as much as books as stories, you know. Mm. So it's – I've got – lots and lots of bookshelves and they have lots and lots of bookshelves so it's um yeah we rarely go anywhere without bringing home a book yeah yeah Same so thing. maybe we shouldn't go to these towns because we would probably <laughs> come home with about you know a car load from each one yeah i'm like that except with magazines and typewriters Typewriters. Yeah, I've got one. I've got one vintage typewriter which I adore. How many have you got? Oh, I've only got two at the moment, but I'm. I've been on the verge of buying many. Oh, really? <laughs> and I've got my eye on one, um, which I'm still deciding whether I'm going to buy it or not. Really? Yeah. Buy it. Yeah. Life's too short. Buy <laughs> the typewriter. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. What do you do with them though? That's the thing that stops me from having lots of them. Is like. What am I going to do with all these typewriters? Where do I? You look at them. Yeah, but what do you? So what do you display them? You're going yeah, to have so, to set up an office to put them in. Yeah, so there's. Um, I'm eventually going to get those shelving things where you can display like one in each little box. Oh yeah, yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, I like yeah. those little boxes. Yeah, they're mm. good. Okay, good. So another a link that I came across this week, it was actually from a couple of months ago, but I only came across it today in one of those sort of curated lists. And it's great. It's by um, Belinda Weaver, who is actually a Writer Centre graduate, and she has a blog called Copyright Matters. She was actually a uh, finalist in a business category of the Best Australian Blogs competition. Right. And she wrote a great post on my five biggest writing fears revealed. Right. Now, she's a copywriter and um, we'll put the link in the show notes, but she has said fear number one is not being taken seriously. Number two, other copywriters might laugh. Three, calling myself a writer, and we've spoken about that before. Yeah. Four, not having enough time. And five, interestingly, 
that I have a job, not a business. Now, it's that fifth one that I thought was interesting because she says, I started Copyright Matters to ditch two hours of commuting and make my life more family friendly. I'm now working harder than I ever did for anyone else. But that's okay. I'm able to work around my life and that was the point. So when you started freelancing, Al, <clears throat> did you find yourself working longer hours or you know, did did was it did it meet your expectation? Uh, when I first started freelancing, I actually started because um, I was working full time in magazines, and then I decided um, that I knew I'd sort of I'd met my you know now husband, and I had decided that I was going to have children at some point. Because up until that point, I was really thinking I wanted to edit a magazine, like I wanted to be, I wanted mm. to get myself into one of those really big jobs. Mm. And then I realised as I went further up the magazine chain that I got to do less and less of the things that I liked. And what I really liked was the writing. And what I really didn't like was trying to manage people and, oh. you know, with hangovers and people who <laughs> didn't turn up and everyone, you know, in, in our sort of office, in our world, it was drama after drama after drama. And yeah. I, I just realised that that probably wasn't going to be me. And also, you know, I would have to wear the right shoes every day, which was oh, never, God. never going to yeah. be me. But anyway, that's another story. Um, so I actually segued at that point into working three days a week full time as a features editor at House and Garden and freelancing two days a week. So I, I worked up to it because I, um, I'm not someone who's just going to go, right, that's it, chuck it all in and move on to the next thing, not having any idea what's going to happen. Um, I'm much, mm. much more sort of pragmatic again we come back to that word um so that was good for me in the sense that it allowed me to see exactly how much time things were going to take me it allowed me not to procrastinate like I was working a fairly heavy freelance load at that point as well as a a three-day-a-week job so I had two days a week to do my stuff and I had to get it done in those two days a week and that really set me up well for when I became a full-time freelancer and I was working around children and I was doing all those different things. So um, I think from that perspective, uh, you know, it wasn't such a major leap for me. But having said that, she talks about the fact that she works in her business a lot Mm. and that she wasn't working so much on her business of promoting and all that stuff. And I think that um, I did that for a lot of time. I worked, you know, in my business for a long time, just doing the same things over and over again, getting the bills paid without mm. thinking too much about what I was going to do next. And I think that that's something that you kind of, you do need a bit of a plan, I think, mm. if you're going to start a freelance business. You've got to have some idea of where you're going and what you're going to do with it. Um, that's just my thoughts. What but about you? But did you work longer hours? I worked a lot, yeah, I did. But mm. but I was still working full you know full time at that stage. You know, I was doing three days a week. I was doing two days a week at home. Um, so probably in the end, yes, I did work longer hours, but you work long hours in magazines anyway. That's, so, yes. you know, I, 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 if the transition for me was not massive because I was used to working, you know, 75, 80 hours a week anyway. Yeah, right. So, yeah, that's, I mean, but I think when you work for yourself, you do work longer because oh, you, yeah. you're into it. Yeah, you, you know, you're working hard for yourself and that makes a big difference, I yeah. think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I found that I worked way longer hours. Yeah. Um, and because I guess you, at, when you first start freelancing, you say yes to almost everything. You do. <laughs> because you, yes. you, you're just scared that it's, you know, yep. not going to come back. But, you know, fortunately it does. Um, anyway, so I worked uh, very long hours. However, the exciting part for me and um, – you know, uh, was that I realized that with freelancing, there's no ceiling. Whereas when you were on a salary, that's all you could ever get. Yeah, that's um, right. There was always a ceiling. So when I first started, um, you know, I was taking on all these jobs, but then all of this money was coming in and I thought, this is so great. Like I'm getting so <laughs> much more money than I did <laughs> in this, you know, fancy yeah. glossy magazine job. Yeah. Um, and, uh, of course, you can't necessarily sustain really long hours for too long yeah. um, and you need to plan all that, but you figure that out eventually. But I love the fact that there's no ceiling in freelancing. Which is very true. Mm. So our other link for this week is um, I just thought I'd throw this in because we know we often talk about fiction and that sort of thing, but writing encompasses so many other types of genres. And this release is about 10 pointers for writing a solid press release. 
Now, right. yeah, look, you and I receive press releases a lot. Yes. And um, some of them are great and some of them are dire. Yes. And um, sometimes I know that certainly many graduates in our community, they're exploring the world of corporate writing, exploring some PR writing, and so they are starting to write press releases as well. Um now, this one is partic- it's useful because it's got some tips from people in the industry. Yep. And, for example, the first one is when drafting a press release, think like a reporter. A reporter will read the headline and the first few sentences. If it doesn't capture him in the first few sentences, it gets deleted. So get yep. to the point right away by keeping it short and easy to read. And yep. you and I both know, like, not all press releases are like that, are they? No, no, they're not. They, yeah, no. They the number that- of press, the number of press releases that I've received over the years, where I've just looked at the first line and gone, you know, and chucked it without yeah. even getting to the crux of the story. Yeah. Um. So when I write my own press releases, you know, I do, I do write them for people. Um. I, my thinking on it has always been, I guess, I approach them like a journalist. So I try to give the journalist everything that they need in that press release, preferably in the first paragraph. And um, I always try to write the press release in such a way that if it's possible, if the journalist is is running short on time and stuff, they will pretty much run it exactly as I write it. And that's what I find like that to me is a successful press release. Yeah. Um, and that happens more often than you think. It depends on the market that you're sending it out to. But if it, you know, if you write the, get the press release right, they will run pretty much exactly what you give them. Yeah, for sure. And um, I want to add one more of the, uh, you know, mention one of the other tips here and they've said add imagery. We all know that a picture is worth a thousand words and with a large flow of information going to news outlets, you need to make sure that your words are seen. If you invest the time and money into shooting the right image, you will receive much more engagement. Now, you don't necessarily need to shoot a fancy image, but have a decent image when you send your press release. And I think that it's, I think it's particularly relevant to authors and writers because we, uh, you know, deal with um, book publicity people and authors all the time and to because we want to promote them. We want to encourage, you know, people yeah. in the industry. Yeah. And I am often shocked at the number of authors who do not have a decent image of themselves. I do not want your wedding photo or, you know, <laughs> your head cut out of being a bridesmaid or with you holding your grandchildren, unless your book happens to be about grandchildren. Get a decent image of yourself if you want to be featured in, a, in, in the media. Very true. And remember, remember we had that conversation a couple of um, episodes ago regarding the book publicity tips. Mm. And it was if you're sending out a press release about your fiction, find the nonfiction hook Mm. and put that in your press release because that is what is going to make them call you regarding your book. It is not going to be the fact that your book covers lovely either. (laughs) Absolutely. Now, what's our writing book this week? Oh, this is a really interesting one. So this comes to us courtesy of um, our author friend, Alison Rushby, who we interviewed, I think, for episode four of our podcast. And she sent me a little um, a little link this week. She knows how I work. We've worked together on projects before and she is very much a plotter, someone who will work it out from start to finish before she begins. And she knows that I don't work like that. And she's constantly encouraging me to become more of a plotter. So she sent me a link to a book this week called Rock Your Plot. And it's all about how to get your plot together. And she, the reason that she sends it to, sent it to me, and I'll just tell you what, she sent me a little quote to go with it. I really enjoyed this craft book over many others because it gave a solid, concise overview of how to plot without going into too many crazy graphs or fine details. So there's a free workbook that you can download to go with it. You can write all your notes as you go. And the reason that she sent it to me is that she said it's probably a good book for those pantsers, that is people who write by the seat of their pants, making it up as they go along, who are thinking of looking into plotting. And she would like me to be one of those. So that's why she has recommended the book. But she um, she doesn't often go crazy. She reads a lot of craft books and she doesn't often go crazy over them. So yeah. I thought it was definitely worth recommending this one to our readers. 
um, as an Alison Rushby recommendation. Great. Thanks, Alison Rushby. Thanks, Alison Rushby. <laughs> All right. So, in the world of blogging this week, very exciting news. All right. Tell us what. <laughs> well, Reservoir Dad, um, you can find him at reservoirdad.com. His real name is Clint Gregan. You, some regular listeners, may know that Clint Gregan actually won the parenting category of the Best Australian Blogs competition in 2013. And as a result of that, was discovered by Random House. And on the 25th of June, officially, is the release date of his book, Reservoir Ooh, Dad. And, how uh, we'll exciting. Put, we'll put the link in the show notes, but we're very exciting and we're going to get you on the podcast, Clint, because we, we think that your your blog is awesome and that you're awesome. So, um, yeah, check it out. It's a great, um, you know, if you sort of follow the journey of his uh, book, it's a great uh, example of how somebody has built their profile but also honed their writing yeah. as a result of their blog and it's now going to be a published book so exciting very and he's very funny so it's worth worth he's having a look at just because funny. of that because he's very funny and in fact um kerry sackville has a quote on the cover that says if david sedaris had got married and had kids he would have been reservoir dad fall on the floor funny <gasps> that's yes. a big rap yeah big rap. big rap so let's move on to who is? I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Oh my god! Who is our writer in residence? Oh this my week? god! Allison. We're not as excited as I was, <laughs> or nervous, or stressed for that matter. But anyway, our um, writer in residence this week is Hugh Howie, one of the biggest names in fiction publishing at the moment. Who, of course, brought out the stupendously best-selling um, novel Wool, followed by many others, and. Here's a new book out a new uh, called Sand. It's a whole new world. And so we had a little chat about that. We talked about books and, um, and his absolute love of books, which I found really interesting. And uh, we talked about lots of things. And you'll notice when you first listen to this that my voice is maybe a little squeaky at the start, and it's because I was so nervous. But anyway, have a listen, and we shall go from there. Hugh Howey is the author of the award-winning Mollified Saga and the New York Times and USA Today best-selling Wool series. Wool began as a novelette and has since become part of a three-book series known as the Silo series. Wool has spent considerable time in the Amazon Top 100, has been optioned by Ridley Scott and Stephen Zalian for a potential feature film, and has since been published in print. Now comes Sand, published in January this year, which brings us a whole new world. Welcome to our podcast, Mr. Hugh Howley. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. So let's begin by talking about your newest work, Sand. Given the extraordinary success of Wool and the Silo series, did you experience a certain sense of um, second novel nerves about this one, despite the fact that you've written a lot of books? Like, I'm just wondering if it's hard to follow up such a runaway success. Yeah, in some ways, Sand was harder to write than the sequels to Wool, um, because I knew that people enjoyed that world and they enjoyed those characters. But with Sand, I was having to start a completely different series. And you just don't know if um, people are going to uh, come along with you and give it another world a chance. You know, people get really attached uh, to characters and to certain creations. Um, what helped is that I had a backlist that people who enjoyed Wool, um, after they uh, just devoured that story, they went and read some of my other works, which are very different. And the response to those stories was just as high. So um, that gave me some confidence that it, it wasn't just that one story that people were enjoying. Okay, so you had a sense that they would accept new um, new things from you because you had already written stuff before that they could find. Yeah, it's the beauty of books these days is they don't go out of print. The uh, all the everything I've ever written is available in both print and ebook and, and audiobook, and you don't um, have to worry about the the local shop uh, having them in stock. You can click a button and have a brand new copy of these works sent to you. So even works that I wrote back in 2009 when I first got started, uh, all those works are available and they're brand new and it's um, uh, really a, a cool feature of print-on-demand technology and some of the things going on in the book industry that books no longer die like they used to be. Some, it used to be you had to hope that you could find them at a used bookstore or go through a 
book collector to track down some rare copy. But uh, now books uh, stay around forever. Okay, so tell us about Sand. When did you begin writing it? Was it because you write all the time? Like you have a work in progress section on your um, on your website, and I can see you're currently working on like four or five different projects. So you're writing all the time. So when did you begin Sand? Like was it halfway through all the excitement about wool? Was it when all that was over? Like when did you start, and and how did you begin? Like did you like with new characters, etc. Well, it, I started the writing on the 1st of November this last year, and I wrote it as part of uh, a yearly um, program called uh, NaNoWriMo. It's National Novel Writing Month, and it's an organization based in All right. California, but it's worldwide. Hundreds of thousands of people sign on every year. The challenge is to write a rough draft in 30 days, uh, just in the month of November. Yep. Um, so, uh, but the, the, yes, we're big fans. Of yeah, it's, it's, um, I, I love the program. I, this is my four, uh, fifth year participating. Um, the, a large part of wool was written during, uh, NaNoWriMo and the second part, the middle, uh, third of shift was written during NaNoWriMo. So I'm a huge fan, wow. but the, the story started many years ago. And, um, when I, after I published wool with, um, Random House in the UK and Australia, my editor, Jack Fogg, asked me what else um, I, I could keep working on in the future. And I told him the, the story about people who dive down in the, the sand that now covers their world and they have to bring up scraps from the old world, uh, from the bottom of the sand to rebuild the new world. He said, oh, I love this idea. I can't wait to, to read this book. And then uh, it was about year and a half or two years later, I'm, I'm handing him the manuscript and he's emailing me back and he's like, Oh my God, I like, I like, I think I like this even better than a bull. So that was really cool. But having it, having the story gestate and sit in the back of my mind for a year so I can work on the characters makes it easier to sit down and write the manuscript. I'm not having to make it up while I'm writing it. Okay. You say in the blurb, for sand on your website that you've never been more proud of a printed work in your entire life. Why, why is that the case? Why this book? Well, the, the physical creation, I mean, uh, you know, books are two different things. There's the story that's inside and that's just, uh, those words can hold many different forms. It could be oral, it could be an audio book, but the, the book itself is, is that physical creation, which as a, a book lover and collector, uh, I pay attention to things like how books are bound and, the cover art, uh, even, you know, I love when books give credit to the font in the beginning or back of the book, you know, these, that yeah. attention to detail. Yeah. When I, the first time I held this book, I just, I, you could feel the amount of love that went into it from the publisher and, and from everyone involved in the production team. Um, you've got a dust jacket that's reversible and, you know, it's, uh, this is something that, um, Real fans of this work might even uh, hang on their wall. It's uh, the inside's uh, this beautiful map with uh, in, which includes all this great artwork involved in the map, um, and then the the uh, board of the hardback itself. What's uh, what's there when you take the dust jacket off um, has its own graphics and its own uh, art. So um, none of this is necessary. They didn't have to you know. A lot of books, you just do the board and then you throw a dust jacket on it and you send it out there. And you can tell not just that, yeah. that thought and care went into this, but a lot of work, a lot of effort went into creating this book. And uh, I've, I've never, not just my own books, but I, I, you, I don't see books that have this kind of uh, attention to detail. And I, I guarantee my, uh, my, a lot of my U.S. readers are going to be importing copies of this book just to, to own it. It's that beautiful. Wow. So you're obviously like you're a fan of a beautiful book. Like the way you're talking about that, you're a man who appreciates a beautiful printed book. And yet your name is so synonymous with um, with ebooks in so many ways, isn't it? Like, do you feel um, like, do you, are you a man? Do you have a huge library at home? Yeah, my wife and I, we, of we have a bit of a physical Yeah, books? we have a bit of a problem. We, um, we've, and we've amassed a collection of uh, tens of thousands of books over the years. And uh, every time we move, it's, you know, quite a chore, but uh, we love them. I have, I have books that, you know, I have, I have books that I um, own just because of the 
age and the quality of the book, you know, old leather bound uh, books. And then I have uh, all the, the hardback nonfiction works that I can uh, never get rid of. And um, I just came back from BEA in New York and had to ship uh, books home, not just from BEA, but every <laughs> every bookstore I went into in New York, I can't leave without buying one or two books. And, and we both read voraciously. But um, yeah, I'm, my dream has always been to own a, uh, a small bookstore and it's something that I'm pursuing now. Um, I think, you know, Oh, you are going to do that. Yeah, we're. I'm uh, looking at property now, trying to figure out where we want to uh, base this and uh, how big of a space to get and whether to lease or to to buy. But um, yeah, it's been uh, you know a, a dream since childhood, and now I um, I have the ability, and my community has the need. So it's uh, it feels like an obligation, really, to to open one. Um, but I uh, I think the you know the reputation I have for selling. Um, or uh, for being an ebook writer just comes from the time that I published and how, uh, how much I've embraced the technology to get, um, stories into the hands of the people who want them. But I've, I've always published print books, uh, uh alongside my ebooks. And I've, I've had, um, fans and readers and print form from the very beginning. They've just been, you know, vastly outnumbered by the, by the number of people who've uh, downloaded my ebooks. That's interesting. So for you, like the book is not dead. Long live the book, basically. Yeah, well, long live story. Um, yeah. The book was uh, the the book was the best technology in a lot of ways. It's still the best technology for disseminating story. Uh, but you know, I think we 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 miss the fact that um, ebooks are um, helping increase readership all over the world. There are people who live in communities that will never not even big enough for for libraries. So. Um, you know, the driving hours into a town to get to a bookstore uh, diminishes the amount of books that are consumed. Yeah. So um, ebooks basically put a bookstore in every child's bedroom, and that is something to celebrate. Okay, so let's talk about that because your your as you've said, you know, your your name is synonymous with ebooks and with indie publishing, um, and you're a great advocate for indie publishing. Um, so your first novel was actually traditionally published by a small press. What made you decide to self-publish your second novel? Why did you go to self-publishing? Well, I was I was very much leaning towards self-publishing um, beforehand. Anyway, I I was going to publish my debut novel just on my blog uh, chapters at a time and then get some uh, copies printed for whoever wanted one. Um, but I had the people who, uh, friends and family and some um, critique groups online who read the early manuscript said, this is too good for that. You, you need to get this uh, out there with a publisher. And so I, I really caved to that uh, uh, pressure. Um, I didn't believe in the work enough to do that, but I listened to the people who did. And sure enough, it got picked up rather quickly, but um, I still had the feeling that um, the purest way to do this would be for me to to control the final artistic expression of the work and the presentation and, um, you know, have the ability to work as quickly as I wanted and to write whatever I wanted. I didn't really want to fall into that trap of having an editor or a publisher saying, okay, your next book needs to be the sequel to this book. I, okay. um, I want to write in, in all genres. So uh, okay. those were just a handful of the reasons. Yeah. So you had, it's interesting that you had the, the confidence to go forward and do that, but you weren't necessarily that confident, you know, in the first book, you were going to put it on your blog. You weren't necessarily that confident that people said it was too good for that. So that's an interesting dichotomy there, I think. Would you agree? Yeah, well, yeah, well, for me, uh, you know, I, for the people reading it, I think the stigma for self-publishing was very much um, part of their rationale. Like, right. you know, it's, um, they thought it needed a bigger platform. Um, I've never looked down on, you know, I, I kind of, I know the history of self-publishing and how many great um, writers in the past, books we call classics today, were published by the author themselves. So, and I was comfortable writing for the internet, um, which is all that self-publishing, creating your own blog, um, putting up a Facebook post, tweeting, yeah. all of that is self-publishing. So I've, I guess I'm just of a generation that's never seen the stigma. I don't, it, vanity presses, I understand where you're being really taken advantage of and paying 
tens of thousands of dollars, but that's not self-publishing. No, so given that, and given that the stigma with self-publishing is definitely, you know, disappearing, what do you think stops people from doing it now? Well, I, I think there's a lot there. I mean, some people, their dream is to see their book in a bookstore. The first time I saw my uh, wall in a bookstore was in London, and that was because I did a publishing deal with Random House, um, who, you know, who's now releasing Sand. Yes. And, um, you know, it was, a, it was a big enough event that uh, I was on the phone with my wife as I'm walking into the store knowing I'm going to see the book there for the first time. And uh, I wanted to share that that moment with her. So I'm talking to her live while I'm walking around the store and <laughs> see the book. And you know, if that's that's it's such a that's such a dream for people who love bookstores and love books. And if, if you want that, um, self-publishing is probably not the best route to go. So, right. Um, you know, depends on what you want uh, out of your out of your career. But yeah, I think um, you know the stigma is is changing, and it just means a flowering of of more voices and more choices for uh, for readers, more choices for how to get books out there for writers. Um, this can only be a good thing. It's you know, no one complains about the internet being a place where anyone can put up their thoughts and ideas, um, and and people don't complain that there's too much on the internet to find. Uh, we just uh, trust that the good things that we discover are easily shareable and so that they'll percolate to the top. Okay, so I know that one of the questions that you get asked over and over is whether you work with an editor. And I know that because I read that in your tips for writers on your website and that you do now work with um, David Gatewood, I believe. Um, but you didn't start out that way. So do you think your writing has changed since you began working with an editor? Yeah, well... My first editors were my wife and my mom, either yep. one of whom could, could do it for a living. Uh, right. They're both skilled skilled enough at uh, both grammar and developmental editing that if they wanted to do this freelance for a living, both of them could. Um, and so I was working through the two of them and a beta reader. What, um, what has happened working with someone like David is that I have, I can write a little looser and um, with a little more confidence now knowing that I've got someone who's going to make sure that nothing big uh, um, passes through to the reader. Okay. Um, so it's, it's hard to ex explain the confidence that you get. And I, I felt this as well with my mom and my wife. Um, but I guess there's something when you're paying someone, you know, good money to edit your work, there's this feeling of I've bought myself insurance, you know, yep. um, not, nothing bad is going to happen to the work because this person is their job is to make sure that doesn't happen. Okay. Have you ever had a situation where there's been, you know, that you've disagreed, like where he's just gone, this is not working and you've thought, no, it is. And I'm going to continue down this road. Uh, you know, I, I probably accept 95% of his suggestions because, you know, he's, he's brilliant. Uh, the same with Jack Fogg, my editor in random, at random house. Yeah. Um, and, and of the 5%, um, most of it is a uh, very small thing. So it was one time in, I believe it was in shift where we had a um, completely different vision for where the story should go. So it was in the developmental editing phase. Right. And I, I, I'm pretty sure I got my way with that. And I think David <laughs> even may have come back at the end and said, yeah, you're right to go that way. But most of the times uh, he, when he points something out that, that needs to change, I see immediately that, that it does need to change. Okay. Well, that's, there's obviously a real trust there that which you do need to develop with an editor if you're working with them, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is the cool thing about um, being able to work with the people that I uh, choose to work with. You know, um, with my publisher in the U.S., I'm on my third editor in a year and a half just because people leave and oh, yeah. get new editors. So, um, you know, when you're assigned an editor, that can be a challenge. You really hope it's someone you can work well with. You don't really yep. can't just say, can I, can I try someone else? But I'm, I, I'm real fortunate. Jack uh, Fogg with Random House and David uh, with my other works. Um, I consider both of them friends. I mean, um, when I, when I see these guys, I throw my arms around them and I, um, you know, like Jack and I've had a funny history. We, uh, we went to tour the book up in Wales, uh, we were promoting wool and we went to a science fiction convention up in Wales and we got to stay in a little caravan together 
it was one of those things that like when he rolls over in the bed in his bedroom, the whole thing rocks on its, on its axles, you know, and this like little, just a tin can of a, of a caravan. And, uh, and, and we had a blast, but I don't know how many, uh, writers and editors, you know, get to have that kind of relationship where you can really you just feel like two guys, um, hanging out and, and, and good friends and you forget the per- professional relationship because you get along so well. Yeah, it's fairly unusual and very cozy by the sounds of things. <laughs> yeah, it was. I, 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 it's, it was one of the highlights of my book tour. I, we had a great time up there. Oh, that's great. Well, look, a lot of people probably look at where you are now and wonder, you know, how it all happened. Um, when you began your indie publishing career, were you thinking right from the start about marketing your work? Did you have this whole author platform thing in your head and and think I've got to I've got to sell from the start? Uh, no, I I had a very long um, horizon for all of this. When I it took me twenty years of, of futility of of wanting to write a book and trying and starting books and not finishing them before I finally completed my my first manuscript. And getting over that uh, long a period of, of frustrating, um, a sense of failure, really, that, I, okay, I'm never going to write a novel, never going to write a novel, because I've tried so many times and I can't do it. Once I finally did, I knew, okay, this is all I want to do. I just want to write. So even when my first book was out, I had, you know, my dad was like, you, you, know, you should be out there doing this and doing that. You should try this to promote it. And I'm saying, Dad, I have... I just have this ability to write now. I want to just throw all my energy into that. And 10 years from now, I can look at everything that I've written and figure out how to promote it. But I, I need to wait until I can't write anymore. So my my drive at the beginning has just been to um, write as many stories as I can, as I have in me, and worry about the marketing later. Wool took off without any promotion at all. I didn't I didn't have a link to it on my website. I didn't tweet about it. I didn't Facebook about it. Wow. Um, I just made it available. Yeah, it it happened organically. And it was because I had seven other published works that had developed a small following. So I had a handful of readers out there. And um, uh, the ability to share things that we enjoy these days is unmatched. You know, that's where social media is really powerful. It's the ability for readers to share the things they discover with each other. Yeah, and it, and it means if you write if you write something that that strikes a nerve and um, and finds its audience, uh, that audience can just really explode. So it just it began as what you describe as a novelette. So that was what the first part of a serial type of thing, or it was just a short shortish story. Or yeah, at the time it was that was the whole story. So yeah, novelettes are. Um, a story that's longer than a short story, but it's shorter than a novella, and it's a real category. There's a um, there are awards for best novelette. You know, it's, wow. um, so it's a it's, its own genre. But uh, there you go. I learned something there. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, it's no, it's it's a great length of story too. It's um, a lot of long magazine articles would fall into that that range, um, and it's it's enough for great character development, but it's not long enough to be considered a novella. It really um, cuts out what can become a boring middle of a lot of books. And this yeah. is not to, to judge books. This is something authors admit that the middle is the hardest to write because developing, you know, introducing the world and the characters is exciting and wrapping it all up is exciting, but all the stuff in the middle, keeping that entertaining is difficult. Yes. And with wool, this was going to be an entire novel. I had an idea for a novel and I knew the world and I knew the the ending and I put off writing it because I wasn't sure about all the rest. Okay. And I just published this, this novel called the plagiarist. And I was like, Oh, this is, this is the length of story that I need to put wool in. And, and that's how it came about. I, I realized that this was the best uh, way to tell the story. I had no plans to write anything else in the series. This was, the first one was the whole story. Okay. Yeah. Why do you think it resonated so deeply with people and then suddenly you had to write more? Well, I think the, the, the figurative story that I was telling, um, which you don't expect readers to get, um, you know, I, I write, uh, I, I, 
I didn't believe my English professors when I was in school, and they were telling me all the hidden meanings and stories. But it's true. When you when you live in this, these worlds and you're writing these stories, you layer in all these um, figurative meanings. And for this book, the figurative meaning is that we keep hearing that the world outside is so awful. Yeah. And what does that do to us? And do we choose to believe that, that the world is just getting worse and worse and worse? Or are the, the real... Uh, the people with the real courage are those the people who doubt that view and want to go and see the world for themselves or want to make it a better place. So while it's a very dark and depressing story, there's an underpinning of hope behind it, that, that, that we're celebrating the people who, who dare to hope. And I think that's the time that this story came out, um, it really hit a nerve with people and, and everyone I know who read it early on went and told, you know, 10, 20, everyone in you, you have right. to go read this short story. Um, and so, yeah, I think it was a product of its time. The fact that it's still selling as well as this makes me wonder if it's a timeless um, uh, observation of, of human nature or if it's just, um, a product of the world that we've, that we've lived in the last uh, handful of years. Well, it's certainly, I mean, I, I think the world that you've built, I mean, I've read it, and I think that the world that you've built there is amazing. I, I, at the, just the la- it's, well, it's a layered world, and the layers come through in, in all the different areas, and I think people relate to a really well-developed world as much as anything. Um, that's just my thoughts on it, though, but anyway. Um, so moving on. Yeah, do I <laughs> Thank you. Moving on, um, do you think it's more difficult for people to stand out in the publishing marketplace now than it used to be? Do you think, like, it just seems to me like there's, you venture online and everyone's a writer and everyone's promoting a book and people are uploading 20,000 new books to Amazon every day and, um, you know, that discoverability thing that people talk about, like, is it harder? But then, you know, then you have wool that you didn't promote at all and people found. So what do you think the... Keys. If it's if it's harder, it's only I would say it's it's not all that much harder because I I worked in bookstores for years and um, even ignore everything that's self published, even the books that were coming out just from the major publishers. Um, it was daunting how many books uh, yep. were coming out every year. Yep. As a bookseller, and you know it's in one hand. Uh, it never felt like enough books for the voracious readers of certain genres. They would gobble, you know, young adult readers yeah. would have read everything in the section and they would say, where's the next thing? Yeah. On the other hand, there were so many traditionally published authors whose books sat spine out for three months and then we pulled the book and returned it and they never had a chance. Yeah. So there was never enough of some books and there was too many of some others I think, uh, yeah, it's hard to stand out, but, you know, we, first of all, you, you have to write half a dozen books before you even know if you have a chance. Um, I don't think one book will, uh, be enough for most people to launch a career. Um, so, so that's the first thing you need to write multiple works. The second thing is if, if you, if you have an ability to write, to hold someone for an entire novel, you should be able to hold them for a blog post or a tweet or a Facebook update or yeah. something. Yeah. Um, so don't just throw a tweet out there or throw a Facebook post or throw a blog post. Put the same care and passion into everything that you write online that you put into your works. And if, you know, if you're not able to woo someone with 120 characters, um, 120,000 words probably isn't going to uh, go over very well. So, um, you know, that's, well, will it ever be easy? I don't think so. It was, it was never easy before. Um, but <laughs> no, it's what, never been easy. What's great is, no, it's never been easy, but what's great is now it's, it's much easier to, um, to get your voice out there at all. And there's so many niches that were never, uh, uh, that publishing ignored, you know, like genres that were too many mixes of several genres. So we didn't know how to categorize them. And those books, just they, agents and editors would love these books and they didn't know how to publish them. And now those books are being published and finding an audience. And now publishers are seeing 
because of this that readers are more adventurous and they want to read things that, that don't fit neatly into our um, established genres. So uh, I, I think that the I think the future is bright for writers and readers, and we're going to have uh, a glut of of things that are published. And I think that's something to celebrate. You know, I don't worry about the internet being uh, overburdened with um, uh, new blogs every single day. I'm glad that everyone has that ability to blog. And I trust that if it's a wonderful uh, post being put up online, that someone will see it and they'll tell everyone they know about it. And then we okay. will all discover it. So the so your theory is also that is is as we were talking earlier about that the cream it does rise like people are going to talk about the stuff that really resonates with them. Yeah, I think that I think you said it really well there that uh, we're going to talk about what resonates with us. That doesn't, you know, I think thinking of the cream rising to the top puts a value judgment on these things, and I yep. um, I'm less comfortable with that because okay. resonating with us can be the thing that offends us or the thing that. Um, shocks us or the thing that doesn't have what someone would judge to be artistic qualities, but has um, some other uh, thing to offer. If it's just the story or one character or the presentation. Um, So yeah, the ability to have anything that resonates with us to be um, freely available with infinite number of copies printed on demand or ebook or whatever. I think that's, this is something that we're just seeing the, the beginning potential of here. Okay, so how much of your day do you devote to writing and how much do you devote to the business of being Hugh Howie, indie publisher and author? Because you are I've still writing about, a lot. Uh, yeah, yeah, I still write a lot. I spend about three hours a day writing, which is what I was doing when I worked, had a full-time day job and everything else going on in my life. So um, it leaves a lot of hours and I don't spend that time fishing or, you know, doing other things that I, I, I can enjoy doing with my free time. I, if I'm not writing, I, um, because I'm really passionate about the book industry and, and the, um, really the fortune that I have to be a, uh, an author, I spend all my time not writing, furthering that career. And, and, um, I, you know, I guess you can consider it, uh, procrastination, but, um, when I'm not writing, I'm, I'm at least procrastinating in a way that's productive. You know, I'm answering email, okay. I'm writing a blog post, I'm doing something um, that's involved in this career. So productive procrastination, I like that. Exactly. I'm going to use that. <laughs> All right, and my last question for you would be, do you have three pieces of advice for writers who are, well, who would like to be where you are now, I guess? Sure. So for the, um, the, the people who, for like me, were, uh, you know, I've struggled for so long to even finish a book, I think the best thing to learn as a, a new writer is to write to get to the end of the story and not just waste your time revising the book early on, but just yeah. write in rough draft, know that you're going to delete things and change things and push through to the end. For the people who have a work in hand, and now they want to get it uh, out there. Um, it's don't be in a rush. Um, you want to polish that story to perfection, no matter how you're going to publish it. Yeah. Um, if you send it to an agent and you haven't had it properly edited or workshopped with friends or other people uh, go over it with you, um, it's probably going to get rejected by an agent or an editor. And if you're going to self-publish it, it's probably going to be rejected by readers unless you really pour your heart into perfecting that story. Um, and then finally, for the people who have the work out there, um, that's also a time to be patient. Uh, works now are available forever, and you don't have to worry if it doesn't take off in the first month or even the first year. Uh, as soon as the work is published, um, or as soon as it's out of your hands, if someone else is publishing it, start writing that next piece. It's all about... Um, you know, developing as many stories as you can. Um, you know, the, that's how the, these three things go together. You want to write as many great stories as you can, have them be as polished as possible, and make sure that they're available to readers and not, you know, locked away in a desk drawer somewhere. <laughs> 
Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. I really appreciate your time and you've given us a lot of great insight there for our listeners. Um, so good luck with sand. I hope it, it takes off as much as wool has. And thank you very much. Thank you so much. That was awesome. I love the fact that we've had Hugh Howie on our podcast. I'm very excited and I think the thing, I I was really interested to have the conversation with him about the fact that he's planning to open a bookstore, Mm. a, you know, know, if that's going to be an indie bookstore, I don't know what, what would not be an indie bookstore, but... It came at this in the same week that I saw on Twitter that Jeff Kinney, who is, the, of course, the Diary of a Wimpy Kid author, mm. um, hugely successful, is also opening a bookstore with his mm. wife. And I'm thinking that maybe this could be a trend. I think we just need one more and what we have <laughs> is an author trend. So let's keep an eye out for another one. Okay, for sure. Um we Let's move on to our web pick or app pick for this week. Yes. Um, I thought I would talk about the Pomodoro technique and there are many, many apps that can help you with this. There's, and we've, we've put a list, well, a link to a list of 50 in the show notes. But for those of you who are not familiar with the Pomodoro technique, it's the idea that for anything you do, and obviously I'm referring to writing, but this can be applicable to, you know, studying or doing your work or whatever is to carve it out into 25-minute blocks. And I know that some writers use this very successfully. I think um, you know of some writers that use this successfully, don't you, Al? Well, John Birmingham, who is, of course, a very um, popular and successful um, author and columnist, well, I actually heard about the Pomodoro Technique uh, originally via him on Twitter. He constantly tweets about it. And I had in my head when I first saw it this vision of him with a little tomato-shaped egg timer, you know, like I had no idea what he was talking about. So I kept seeing it and kept seeing it and then I clearly I had to go and do a bit more research to find out what it was all about. But, um, yeah, so he is someone who uses it and uses it regularly and and well, obviously, because he's churning out a lot of stuff. Yeah. So the concept is that you set your timer for 25 minutes and you make yourself work for a 25-minute block. Your timer goes off and, you know, it can be a traditional buzzy egg timer. It can be an app or your computer that actually goes off. And then you go do something else for five minutes and then you – come back and and do another, you know, sprint for 25 minutes. Now, have you ever worked like that, Al, especially after you heard about it from John Birmingham? No, never (laughs) in my entire life have I worked like that. I tend to work, um, I do work in bursts, but they Mm. tend to be, um, I'm just going to get this job done and then I'll go and have a five-minute break, and then I'm going to do the next thing. So I don't tend to be – I don't break my day up like that. Um, I probably should. I mean, John's clearly – it's working for him, so I should probably give some more thought to it. But, no, I've I've never used any of those kind of time management things. I I think I learned – as I said, you know, when I first started out with freelancing, I was doing those two days a week, and it was like I've got to get this work done, and I can't really not do it because I won't get paid. And I think that's an incredibly good training for (laughs) everything. Yes. In life. <laughs> yeah. I but what tr- about you? Do you use it? I try. I don't use it regularly, but I did try the Pomodoro technique and I kind of worked on uh, my own version of it. So I kind of tell myself, all right, you're only going to do this for 25 minutes or half an hour, whatever. Um, and I start doing it, but without fail, <laughs> right. I go past the deadline. I don't yeah. break because yeah. I find that if I'm, you know, in the flow, yeah. I I have no concept of time and I just want to keep on going. So what it's good for is to get me started, is to motivate me to get me started because I think, okay, I'm only needing to do it for 25 minutes, but I rarely stop at the 25 minutes. So it's a weird psychology, I suppose. But I think getting started is the hardest thing. Absolutely, definitely. You always think things are harder than, you know, than they really are. But what's our working writer's tip this week? (laughs) Well... We're, we're back to that word pragmatic because clearly that, you know, that's going to be our theme for today's show. Um, this week, our wording, working writer's tip comes from Julieta Jamison, who is a journalist and also a presenter at the Australian Writers' Centre. And it comes from a, a little exchange that we had on Twitter. Um, it seems that both of us as working writers are massive fans of fingerless gloves. <laughs> I know what you're, you're going to say. What? Honestly... <laughs> 
in winter, as a freelancer, I cannot get by without them because there is nothing worse than sitting at a computer and feeling cold and it not, you won't work if you're, if you're miserable. So she and I both swear by fingerless gloves to actually get the work done. So if you're finding it a little bit hard and it's hard to get motivated, particularly if you like if you're fi- squeezing your fiction in, say, to nighttime sessions like I always have been, um, it's really hard to get excited about going and sitting, you know, at your computer and stuff when you're cold and you're wrapped up in your dressing gown and you've got all that stuff going on. So it, it helps. It helps to feel cosy. So fingerless gloves. That's okay, it. Okay. So Alison and Julieta. <laughs> I know. I'm, I've got them on now. I'm sitting here in my bright red, and they're red because they make me type faster, um, fingerless gloves. Okay, so my comment on that is… <laughs> Get a heater? Yeah. I there's this thing. It's called a heater. <laughs> um it but, does but, wonders. But fingerless gloves are much more environmentally conscious, you know. Like it's if you're just one person, like I am at home at the moment, I'm, I'm here in my, my whole entire house by myself and I wear my gloves and I don't need to put the heater on. I'm very environmentally friendly, Val. You had no idea, did you? I no. Don't know what just to putting say. it out there. Yep. <laughs> fingerless gloves, I'm telling you, get some. Okay. <laughs> Right. Well, we have to say thank you to those of you who have left uh, reviews and ratings on iTunes. Really appreciate them. Um, and if you have an opportunity to take 30 seconds to do that on iTunes, we'd be really grateful. And I um, would just like to say thank you to all of those people who have been um, sharing our podcast on Twitter and Facebook because yes, thank you. we have a very supportive and enthusiastic community and we really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yes. And if anyone has a question you would like us to answer, email us at podcast at writerscentre.com.au and we will definitely try and get to it in a future episode. Um, and in the meantime, we've kind of come to the end of our podcast for this week. Where can we find you, Alison? You will find me at alisontate.com. And what's your Twitter handle? My Twitter handle is Al Tate. And I'm at ValerieKoo.com and unsurprisingly, my Twitter handle is at ValerieKoo. And you can find the show notes at writerscentercomau slash podcast. We absolutely love bringing this podcast to you every week. So thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next time. Bye. 